Hello, everyone, and welcome to this. Uh, hang on, doing the sums in my oh, head. Yes. Nope, nope. It's a free episode. It's actually, the free one. Oh, because we're doing two. All oh, right. Yeah, it's the free one. It's it oh, is the free go. one. Thank you, Milo. Well, the, yeah. The thing is, when you're doing both on one day of the week, that's going to confuse me again. Uh huh. Because also, logically, we're recording this one first, so this should be the bonus, chronologically speaking. But you've also done it out of order to doubly fuck with my sort of inner ear. Yes. Voice. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you get to get to some sort of like weird, uh, hi- like superposition where you're like, it's the bonus one. That's correct. Uh, we are yeah, yeah. wrong. We're in the podcasting vomit comet here. We, we are. We are screwing with Milo. We're doing CrossFit stuff to him, but it is a, a full house of all of your favorite uh, regular on camera pers- on camera. Nope, not yet. On mic personalities of TF. It's myself, Riley. Mm. I've got Hussein. I've got Milo. I've got Alice and. We are we're very, all very lucky to be joined by uh, by author of Palo Alto and journalist Malcolm Harris. Malcolm, what's up? And thank you for coming on. Hello, thanks for having me. <laughs> May I offer you a formal WhatsApp? <laughs> <laughs> what what's is up going with on? you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's like when the, the first priest. time it's your majesty and the second time it's what's up it's, it's, <laughs> and with your when, spirit, when the priest yeah. when, when the priest says what's poppin you say and what's poppin with you father <laughs> no malcolm has written a really fantastic book that i must recommend uh, what poppeth that i have uh, i have read and what i really enjoy is that it's a really good change of pace from reading like terrible taut sexy thrillers written by mps Mm. It's it's amazing to read a good book. Yeah. I forgot what it was like. <laughs> Malcolm, I don't know if you ever read any like really classic literature, like The Devil's Tune by Syrian <laughs> Duncan Smith, but I'd recommend yeah. it. I've read an American equivalent or two. Uh, oh yeah, as bad I'm sure. I read like mm. Ben Sass is a now is no longer. Oh yeah, but, like he was. Mm. I reviewed his book. That was it was bad. Yeah, bad. Mm. <laughs> ben Sass, the inventor of sarcasm. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, Look, and so we're going to talk all about uh, Palo Alto today, and the story that it tells as the history of Silicon Valley is, I think, a very interesting one, and one that is, to be honest, I think, undertold, because the usual history of Silicon Valley is basically just, there was ARPANET, and then we did the internet for military reasons, and then a bunch of companies started there uh, because of Hewlett Packard. And what you've done is you've told a much, much longer term story that starts a lot earlier and looks at quite a few of the larger social forces in California, in the United States, and in the world that have sort of shaped what Silicon Valley became. However, before we get into that, I did find something, courtesy of friend of the show, Rory Blank, that I wanted to run by everyone first. It's just based on Rory Blank. I feel like this is going to be good. Uh, So, South by Southwest uh, is happening once again this year. Mm -hmm. And I have a list of three titles of different South by Southwest events. And I just want all of you to have a guess as to which one is not featured, which one is not featured this year. Which one you have on made up. Lineup. Okay. Which, mm. which one is not a featured this year. And number one, and we're going we're gonna to wait till I've listed all of them, and we're going to let Malcolm guess first, as, the, as is his right as the guest. Number one, I'm dating an AI, how the metaverse changes society. Number two, be the one. Unlocking the $28 trillion she economy with AI. <laughs> the she economy. 
Yeah, we're unlocking it. We, we've done yeah, a version of, of uh, Herstory, but with economics. Economy. Mm. Uh, and three, does mind control for good really exist? So, Malcolm, knowing what you know about the technology industry and its hangers-on, which of those is not a South by Southwest event from this year? I'm going to have to say I'm dating an AI just because it sounds like the most reasonable of the three. So I found mm. it least likely to exist. Uh, Hussein, which I, of the I three? I think it's a trick question. I think all three of them happened. Oh, okay. Riley, our friend, wouldn't do that to us. I, I went to a, uh, a clown ceremony yesterday. Uh, story for another time. But now I think everyone's tricking me. Including you, okay. <laughs> Riley is turning around with a big ladder. But also, uh, but also, I just think that all these three things are like completely. I can completely seriously see them being real events. So yeah, I think all of them happened. Okay, Milo. Um, well, I, I'm sort of I, I'm torn between does mind control for good exist? Like, is that so weird that it can only be made up? Or is it so weird that it can only be real? Like, I think that's that's the question I'm trying to answer for myself. I think I'm going to pick that one. Okay. That one out. And Alice, I'm cl- it's clearly the she economy. The she economy isn't that that that's not real. Uh, so okay, President she economy. But that's great. Uh, so two of you are right. Uh, it's Malcolm and Hussein. All right. Because wait, because what the first one? Uh, I'm dating an AI. That's from last year's South by ah, Southwest. See? see? Oh, wow. ah, so, like, in terms of the vibes, I got that right. In, yeah. te- in technical terms, Malcolm yeah. got it right. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. so uh, yeah. both right. Oh, but AI was so much worse then. Yeah. You were dating one of those really fucked up dually pictures. <laughs> I, I'm dating an AI, and she keeps telling me that I have to do the laundry. I didn't sign up for this. Um, what, what's happening well, did, did you so see that chatbot that um, uh, 4chan made to try and get like a sort of a, a mommy GF and it made them not be racist oh well it's a, it's guess, a rare positive it's... outcome but they trained it to like you know be <laughs> sort of supportive and gently dominant and it's like I'm legitimately disappointed that you deny the holocaust you have to stop doing this I'm not joking so the AI looked at the guy and was like I can fix you yeah, this, this, yeah, this is goes... the thing. We're, we're, we're all going to make it, right? Because Neats, mm. you know, previously, the good ending was you transition your gender. The bad ending was you become a Nazi. But now, even even they can be rescued by the Mommy Dom uh, chatbots. So. It, it, goes, it just goes to show, I think, my, uh, my, my the- thesis, proven again, which is if AI can uh, take your job or uh, affect you in that way, then it's more of a statement about you and your own, uh, let's say, internal complexity than AI. However, we have a lot to get to today and a lot about Palo Alto, the, the book to read, the book of the century. So we're going to launch into that. Now, um, Malcolm, one of the early lines of the book and something that I think is a good frame for getting started with it is that you say Palo Alto is haunted. Can you tell me what you mean by that as we get into this? Yeah, so... It's built on a indigenous burial ground, classic uh, haunting setup. If you like murder people who live in a place and then set up your own town on top of it and then try to forget about them as fast as possible, uh, mm-hmm. you set up some weird dynamics in your uh, core psyche, right? And so part of what I'm talking about is this like spectral ghost uh, metaphor, but then also, what you're haunted by is this impersonal system that's constantly making use of people in these really awful ways. Um, 
Mm-hmm. And so haunting is something that lets you think about forces that make you do stuff that you wouldn't otherwise do, but that you can't point at. Mm. You're in the Patagonia store and blood starts coming out of the walls. You're like, oh, that seems not good. <laughs> or like the swamp yeah. monster. So Palo Alto is also a lot of uh, toxic waste dumps. Mm-hmm. Uh, surprising. You think of it's a really like beautiful place and it is a really beautiful place, but it's like native burial ground, toxic waste dump, uh, all the like classic, really real classic 20th century haunting tropes. I'm at the native place. burial ground. I'm at the toxic waste dump, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> exactly. I'm at the greatest producer of wealth in the history of human history. That's right. So, and I think that, you know, your, your book doesn't, it, it starts very early, right? It starts with the birth of, the birth of California with its settlement by um, Anglo colonizers. And I think really that what I take from this, right, is that the, the, what I understand is that the discovery of California also heralds kind of the death of America, how it was originally designed. Um, because that's the end of the free real estate. You can't just solve your problems by moving a few miles west once you hit California. And so, you know, it's, um, it, it, it is no surprise. Why? Really. Don't be a pussy. Go live in the sea. <laughs> well, they, they tried. Yeah, they like marine. Well, that, that's, that's what they, they, seasteading they got is, right? Too. Like, well, yeah, exactly. Mm, uh, become Dutch. And so... <laughs> Detroit, become Dutch. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, I'm an android. <laughs> so you talk about this, right? As um, in your first chapter, you say the point of is that the series of plagues visited upon California in the second half of the 19th century took the form of men, and we can see the character of the tendencies that shape the state and in turn the world reflected in the men seized by them. So, and and, and as I mentioned, right, they're, they're running out of land, and the plagues inflicted by the people that came to California, whether we're talking about Fremont, Sutter, uh, Stanford, all the people we're going to talk about about this episode seems to me to be a symptom of we've run out of land. We can't externalize our problems. We must now scientifically manage them away. Yeah. Well, and building up that that territory that had been seized for capital, right, gives them a lot more space. So there's this great letter from Marx, I think it's to Engels, where he talks about the incorporation of California and China and Australia and Japan into the capitalist system in the second half of the 19th century and says, you know, with all that space, capitalism's really got some some room to, to move. Like we're probably going to lose in Europe if you think about it. Like in this little corner of the world, we're probably going to lose if capital still has the whole rest of the world to build up. Hmm. And this is just like, an, a, you know, some side note in a letter that like defines the whole next century. Uh, and it's, it's, yeah, the rest, in, 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 the rest yeah. of that letter is like, please send me 50 quid. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he was right about both. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Marx was kind of saying, don't have a look at this. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, and you, we do credit, we credit him with this idea of like, you know, progressive, there's going to be a revolution in Europe and this is how it's going to end. And he didn't, you know, Marx failed to consider the rest of the world. Well, that's wrong. He knew exactly what was going to happen. And this story is sort of the story of that happening. It's uh, and and what we're gonna see as we go through this is the is not just Palo Alto, but California in general, um, and the U.S. So those three levels, right? Then at the internet or four levels, the international, national, st- subnational, and like local, we're going to see exactly that reaction play out. And with this one small strange town that seems to be afraid of building any any building higher than two stories at the center of the global technology and movement of reaction. Um, so 
I want to talk about some of these early men, the, 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 early, the early plagues visited upon California, your, your frogs and locusts and stuff. Because um, you, you write ab- about some, uh, let's say, enterprising uh, vigilantes, such as John Fremont, who is a sort of a cowboy who is sent by the U.S. government to sort of deniably start a revolution against Mexican rule in California and sets quite a bit of a tone for what comes next. Yeah. And when you read this history, it's just nuts how small scale this stuff was. So like the, the Fremont, when he goes to seize California uh, implicitly for the United States, even though that, like, that happens later, um, these are like tiny battles where no one dies, basically. Like the Mexican presence in Alta California is really sparse. Um, and as it's is really the colonial the light presence. the Zorro movies, for one thing. Well, the Zorro movies are, they're uh, misplaced historically, right? They went back and changed the history to put it during the Spanish period when actually the original text uh, by John Roland Ridge that it's based on is based in the American period. And it's about how bad the American settlers are. Um, and so that gets, that gets twisted Uh-oh. all around. Yeah. We love uh, a bit of historical revisionism, don't we? Well, and it was why it doesn't make very much sense. The Zorro story, right? Hmm. Uh, and but we also have we also have more more men who move out to California because before California fills up, there is still some free real estate left. It's just there's limited free real estate. Um, and a lot of what they're doing is they are they are engaged in extractive industry. There's a lot of mercury mining, gold panning, and also early forms of agribusiness, such as the temp the template for commodity wheat farming, which basically gives birth to various different kinds of West Coast aristocracy featured in such films as Chinatown or that own such image libraries as Getty. And you can get um, into some fun stuff with like Cadillac Desert about this later on down the line. Uh, sort of like uh, destroying America's Switzerland, you know, this beautiful fertile valley in order to like, you know, create, you know, greater Los Angeles County. But o- overall, I think that the, the thing that I, that I sort of take from this, though, is that, you know, that it's this, it is this, is this area that is lived in by indigenous people that is also um, owned by another country as well uh, in, in either one of those, those <laughs> it's ways. Been previously stolen yeah. by someone else, yeah. and we're now going to steal it again. Yeah. And, and that the, we, we send in a sort of uh, a, some very small amounts of shock. We, the U.S. sends a very sort of small amounts of sort of shock troops, if you like, to take it over, and uh, then immediately begin, goes about the business of extreme intensification of extractive industry. Well, though, Riley, it's interesting that you say we, because there was some concern amongst US policymakers uh, at various times that, like, if colonization of California didn't proceed apace, there was a possibility that the British, like, via Canada would just come down the West Coast and just, like, take it. And you could have or had, the Russians. Like, yeah, exactly. Mm. You could have had you could have had like uh, sort of Russian colonized California. You had a bit. They had a fort there for one thing. But you could have had yeah. you could have had Canadian California. And had just imagine, imagine the Canadian Napa wine region, Canadafornia. <laughs> I mean, you could have had Japanese California. You could have had Chinese California. You could have had Indian California. There are like a whole bunch of different possible histories this could go. Especially in the period between, you know, so the gold rush famously is 49, the 49ers, and the building of the transcontinental in the 1860s as a consequence of the Civil War. In that period, like, it's being colonized by America, but it's not at all clear that America is going to be able to hold this territory. It is functionally an overseas colony to the United States. And I think seeing it that way as a mid 19th century overseas colony is really important for thinking about it 
uh, in terms of its real peers, which includes something like you know South Africa um, or Algeria, more than like you know you think of California's history as just like another state, but it really was this overseas colony for the United States at the time. I like the idea of the alternate paradox games ass universe where California was colonized by like a communist Australia in about <laughs> 1870. <laughs> and so when we talk about it as an overseas colony, we're talking about, of the way I see it anyways, we're talking also as about a place where new methods for organizing and intensifying extraction can be tried and then expanded and brought back to the rest of the country. So actually there's a line uh, in your book that goes to that. It says, California engineers became the heralds of proletarianizations around the world, the shock troops of global enclosure, drawing the lines that so many others were forced to follow. In their packs, they carried very particular ideas gleaned from the Golden State about how society should be arranged. And if you want to talk about, let's say, colonial methods sort of developing and then returning to the re- expanding to the rest of the world or returning to the metropole, that to me looks like a description of that tendency. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, well, Palo Alto and California starts off as this last link of the chain, right? It, it isn't just away. It's the far flung, you know, the last land to be incorporated into the cl- capitalist globe. Um, and so, but very quickly it becomes part of this metropole, right? Well, then it's California mining engineers as a result of the research that they're doing and the development that they've done and especially the technological development that they've done, um, becomes this sort of the first techies, right? Like everyone wants a California engineer, even though America is not uh, a real player in the end of the 19th century, like colonial race or whatever. Uh, they're not acquiring territory in China or Russia or Myanmar or whatever, but they want to hire Americans and specifically Californians to come out there because they were sought thought of as like the most advanced technological workers of the time, which again was very on purpose, right? So something like Stanford University is intentionally focusing on mining engineering because they know this is going to be a prominent field in a world of colonial extraction. And they want their guys, they want Stanford alum to be the most important people in the most important fields in the world. Could you send some chaps over to Kenya? We're trying to build a fucked up prison. (laughs) (laughs) So we talk about Stanford, uh, and I think this is probably a good place as any to bring in Leland Stanford, uh, for whom, of course, the university was named. The original evil motherfucker. Um, Like, if you think of Robert Barron's, you're you're either thinking Mm. of Leland Stanford or you're thinking of J.P. Morgan. Um, Hearst sometimes gets, gets a look in, but like, by and large, the like, Big guy in the waistcoat with the gold pocket chain and the bit beard, mm. you know, powerful forces of nature, Mr. Beale. That's all Leland Stanford. Mm. And but you, the interesting thing is, you, you talk a little bit about the history, the personal history of Leland Stanford, and he was kind of an enormous fuck up for a while before he eventually just. He was a fail son from like a sort of like decently rich family who like followed the gold rush and, as the expression goes, got rich by you know selling picks and shovels. Um, and then got a hot tip about like like from a friend of a friend about a guy who was really obsessive, a guy called if I remember this right, Theodore Judah, who had this idea in his head. Uh, it, you know, trans women hadn't been invented yet, so you were stuck with this guy who was just like mm. trains, trains. We got trains, uh, and Theodore Judah thought that he had a, a you know route surveyed for a. The, the western bit of a transcontinental railroad, and 
essentially just looking at the word transcontinental <laughs> for a really long time yeah yeah, going, yeah it's like well, it's a wake and something in me so but so Leland Stanford was the money and he and like three other dudes got together in like the back room of a grocery store in Sacramento and were like yeah we will stand you the money to like uh you know survey and build this uh this this railroad which is the very beginning of it cuz when they were getting mm. when they were meeting with Judah like these guys are just shop owners, right? Like they're not big capitalists yet. They pass for like moderately sized capitalists. They call themselves the associates. And Leland was sort of the dumbest of the four, which means that he stands up in front. Like they make him the front man because he's the one who's like least capable. Uh, so we do think about him and they did at the time think about him as the front man, but that's cause like that was his job period. Like all the other guys did the actual business stuff and his job was to like stand in front and have people throw stuff at him. Uh, which was like, and you know, sort of an important job and was also like governor of California or whatever, but it's really the civil war that because it splits the the country in half and splits California basically in half, he goes from being this, you know, some schmuck who's the nominee of the Republican party that no one cares about to being like the most important politician in the state and an advisor to Lincoln who's saying like, oh, this is who you should put on the Supreme court. And then when they're building this, the railroad, uh, they're able to you know, get the contracts and et cetera. But at the beginning, when they're investing in Judah's plan, they just like built a toll road and they immediately try to sell it, which is so funny. It's like, as soon as they get the first part of the railroad built, they're like, let's cash out. We got it. You know, whether this it's is going to work or not, con. I don't know. It's it's a it's a it's a bunch of like short con dumb scam guys doing a sort of like Guy Ritchie sort of is what we're gonna do montage and accidentally building the transcontinental railroads. Um, right, and then they get like super rich again, never never making any particular money off the railroad itself, but like starting all you know we're gonna be start a railroad track supply company that is going to sell the railroad tracks to the railroad, and we're gonna own that company, and we're gonna sell stock in that company, and. So there's like a lot of financial chicanery going on, but Leland Stanford senior dies before that, all, like the government really comes calling. Uh, so he gets off more or less easy, even though there's some uh, gunfire with some angry settlers who want the land they were promised. Just imagining Jason Statham and J- Stephen Graham like trying to tunnel into a bank vault, realizing they've been tunneling for a while, and suddenly they break through, and there's a team of French engineers on the other side handing them the flag, and they're like, "Congratulations on completing the Euro Tunnel." <laughs> Basically, yeah, and like the the construction of the Transcontinental Railroad was like as dirty as you can possibly imagine. You had like wars between these guys and the Santa Fe Railroad, which was like the people's railroad. You had people getting kicked off of their land, you had people getting shot, you had like all kinds of insider trading that wasn't even illegal yet because no one had thought to make it illegal, like buying up all the waterfront in Oakland and sort of strangling the entire city with it, or like deliberately extorting the city of Los Angeles for like making it the big city in Southern California instead of San Diego and then killing San Diego in the cradle. Uh, like, like all of the sort of like anything you can point to about this, like the map, the history of, of California has like Leland Stanford's greasy dumbass thumbprint over it. And moreover, these are tendencies like the, the way that like a lot of California capitalists learned to relate to the state. It is a way that a lot of capitalists everywhere relate to the state. And in fact, especially in California, 
where again like you know it's it's so many so much film noir for example is just completely replete with the big bad guy doing more or less exactly what we're describing this kind of robber baron um you know fake out hijinks where you you know you buy all of the air of uh, one foot above um ground level in the cities so that everyone has to pay you a rent to walk to work you know, it's it's the these yeah. kinds of things are relatively common throughout California's history. I'm going to accidentally build vital infrastructure. See, <laughs> well, and so, it was the promise. It was a promise for settlers too, was that they could get part of that. And it wasn't that the you know, it wasn't the human farmer tradition, right? It wasn't like guys went out to the West Coast thinking like, oh, I'm going to start my little farm and I'm going to like you know sell my goods to the market and I'm going to build a nice life for myself. It's like the timber workers who were also settlers would, you know, engage in these Indian killing campaigns, be awarded territory by the territorial government in reward for their murderous activities, and then rent that land back to the timber company that they worked for for a payoff. So I think more on Lee, on on Stanford though, right? Was who he becomes governor of California. Uh, he becomes rich with all of this. Uh, let's say, extreme self-dealing, which again, uh, you might remember how Adam Newman structured WeWork such, in such a way that he made a lot of his money just renting stuff to WeWork yeah, or getting there's, investment there's like, and interest. There's no Buffin yet. There's no Interpol yet. None of the stuff is like even illegal, as yeah. we say. There's no Libyan mercenaries to hire. No. Uh, so so this, is, this is what you say, though, about, about Stanford himself. You say, Leland Stanford was but a historical vector, albeit a robust, capricious one, and he puffed up like a balloon. Anything in his orbit tended to bulge in the same way, from his vineyard, which is the world's biggest, to his wife, ju- wife's jewels among the world's gaudiest. As a man, he was notably unexceptional, an embodiment of historical forces. He couldn't own horses without transforming them into the world's fastest. The scientific principles of control, measurement, and deliberate change opened a road to modernity, and capital was the draft mule that pulled the whole world down that path. We, we'll California get to his, his horse farm, by the way, because he did something oh. interesting with it. He did fucking love a horse farm. He did well he, he, because he was, uh, uh, along with pretty much all of these dudes, he was heavily into his eugenics. And a good way into eugenics is being like, "I'm going to breed the world's fastest horse." But when that didn't work out for him, he turned his horse farm into a university, <laughs> where he tried to breed the world's fastest students. Yeah, the <laughs> exactly. University yeah. of horse cum. <laughs> yeah, so, um, they should rename it to that. Yeah. So. Let's, so what happens, right? How we get to Stanford University, which is basically the focus more or less of the rest of this episode, because it is where the 20, 20, later half of the 20th and 21st century and America and California and the high-tech economy and Stan Palo Alto and stuff are all made to a greater or lesser extent, is that, is that Stanford, as you say, uh, he keeps living in San Francisco where the people he has... Um, let's say, promised quite a bit to and then not delivered for, even if many of the people he promised quite a bit to were extremely shitty, uh, could see him living in wonderful style and kept on um, assembling outside of his house threateningly. You want to go into that a little bit? This man has more horse come than any of us have ever seen in a lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was the problem. About, so there's this place in San Francisco. It's still called Knob Hill, um, which oh, yeah. I, I think in, in British slang means something slightly different. Uh, <laughs> it's such a kind of tea was, castle. Uh, it was short for Nabob Hill because that's where like the rich guys lived up on the big hill in town. And so you've got at the close of the 18th century or 19th century, excuse me, uh, class conflict throughout the world, right? This is like Paris Commune era. Uh, 
workers, especially workers in cities who are being proletarianized, uh, are resisting that proletarianization or resisting the terms of that proletarianization. I would hate to be proletarianized. Right. Well, California settlers in particular, right? Because they came out there thinking, I'm going to own California. I'm not coming out there to work. I'm coming out there to own. I'm going to you know, find some gold and be a capitalist. Suddenly, they find themselves with the completion of the railroad. Not only are a lot more people coming, which are driving down labor costs, you also have goods coming from the rest of the country. So instead of, you know, I'm a grocer in the Leland Stanford era before the transcontinental, I can charge huge amounts of money for my groceries. I can charge you, you know, 10 bucks an egg or whatever. Uh, Laborers themselves can also charge a lot of money for their work because there aren't that many workers. But with the completion of the transcontinental, you have the undermining of Western industry uh, as well as the undermining of Western wages. And so this rapid proletarianization of these people who thought of themselves as settlers, not as workers. And so this leads to class conflict, really traditional class conflict, as well as so the railroad starts bringing in workers from China to uh, complete the railroad because they needed a consistent uh, workforce that was dependent upon them in a really like proximate way in a way that the indigenous people of California were not because they could just like leave and go to the land themselves and make a life for themselves. They weren't dependent on the railroad. And so what happens, right, is that, as I say, they begin gathering outside of his house threateningly. And, um, you know, he's, I believe he actually, what, one of the times this happens, uh, either him or his wife is like seen to be examining a bunch of stuff owned by Marie Antoinette. <laughs> Yeah, there's this this Severus vase because they're you know they collect things and so they collect the the detritus of the past aristocratic class that had been overthrown, um, and since they're like the bourgeois class, they're collecting you know stuff that used to be owned by kings. So he not only owns the Severus vase, but like buys a bunch of the Queen of Spain's jewels and just gives them to his wife. And you know, you're the Queen of Spain now. Uh, Spotted eating a Fabergé egg, <laughs> right? Oh, and that is most al dente. Of, <laughs> of Leland Stanford Jr., his tour, you know, his charmed childhood is like absolutely ridiculous. Uh, like eating uh, rose petals with the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire or something, you know, like really like ridiculous stuff for a child oh, yeah. to be doing or anyone to be doing, you know, looking at emeralds the size of his fist in the, the royal jewel collection or whatever. He goes and visits the Pope and then dies. Yes, he gets ble- personally blessed by the Pope. Is one of the on his yeah, grand and European it does tour. not take. Um, but yeah, imagine as a child meeting the Pope and you're the one that dies. I mean, like really against the odds. Yeah, maybe. Hey, did that Pope end up living for quite a while longer? <laughs> he stole you know? his youth from the child. Uh, I wouldn't be sending my kid to meet the Pope on the whole. <laughs> <laughs> I think. Yeah. I wouldn't send my kid to meet the Pope on or off or, the hall. Or the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, for that matter. <laughs> yeah. the mo- risky, the risky mo- meets. <laughs> mistreated rich child in history. She's so like the, the noncing tour of his <laughs> Yeah, you do six months in Britain, then you meet the Pope, and then you meet the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire. Um, and, uh, now, my boy, you'll go to Britain, and then rural Afghanistan. <laughs> yeah, and then although he goes on a tour of the Parthenon, doesn't wear a coat, McKinley style, and then just dies. Um, yeah, and it's, it's like... 
very quick. And he's this guy, you know, they, his parents have been planning for him to run the world, right? Like this is the preparation. He's been sitting in these meetings with all like the greatest people in uh, world finance and business. You know, he's personally knows mm-hmm. the Rothschilds, knows the like everybody who's anybody in the world. And then all of a sudden, and it shows that's the problem with putting your, uh, all your eggs in one basket aristocratically, right? It's like if you're an aristocratic you family, one kid. You, you want to yeah. do the, the air, want to do the Netflix show. Well, that's, yeah, so that's the British solution. The United States mm. solution was to create a bourgeois class so that those privileges mm. can be transferred, not through bloodlines necessarily, but uh, through a class milieu. And so Herbert, who Leland Stanford Junior University, first of all, it's uh, the university is named for the dead son, not the father. And the person who really like comes to take over for Leland Stanford Junior in this history is Herbert Hoover, who's part of the first class at Stanford University, and he's an orphan. So you have this orphan coming to replace the dead son of the now childless parents to assume the burden of the like Stanford. Uh, inheritance, and he just takes the ball and really runs with it. A man who always wore a coat. Yeah. So, <laughs> so just just to to connect a few of the dots here, for getting from um getting from the house of Knob Hill to Herbert Hoover, is that specifically the Stanfords they leave San Francisco and then basically build Palo Alto as their a town for them to live in. Um, oh, normal. It yeah, says, it's sort of then, then as now, a sort of armed compound in defense of capital. It says, <laughs> it's in, again, Marie Antoinette shit. In, the, yeah. in Palo Alto, yeah. Well, Marie Antoinette didn't go build a town for herself to live in separately <laughs> right, exactly. to everyone else. Mm. Should have come up that, with the suburbs. Yeah. In mm. Palo Alto, the Stanfords could keep any worker who didn't work from at a distance, something that wasn't possible in San Francisco. Uh, compared to the perch in Knob Hill exposed to the howling winds of class conflict, the South Bay Ranch was a placid, a grassy, pseudo-feudal expanse of lords and servants. At that point, then, uh, Leland Stanford Jr. dies of a cold. Um, but also, Stanford himself becomes, completely obs- becomes totally obsessed with horse breeding and hires a bunch of guys who will go on to form a lot of his, uh, let's say, early views on bionomics uh, and the views of, of other guys on bionomics. Uh, which becomes a real focus of Stanford University, which he starts, as we say, at the bequest of his son in his Leland Stanford Junior Memorial University in uh, Palo Alto, his special town he built where no one is mad at him and he can just breed his horses in peace. Mr. Stanford, sir, if I may, would it not be more conventional to use a male horse? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, many, so, but this is forwarding to a few years later, because we still have a little time before Hoover. After the 1906 uh, earthquake, Stanford was essentially refounded as the institution it is today by an ichthyologist named David Starr Jordan, who definitely did not assassinate Stanford's wife, Stanford's wife Jane, after his own death. And ichthyologist, what? like someone who studies fish. Yep. Okay. Yep. All right. Fine. Sorry. Just, yep. just wanted to check and this, that. And this fish guy, he certainly did not assassinate Leland Stanford's wife. And Craig Fishman. Yeah. So, <laughs> so let's uh, let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about the about the transition from Stanford University as Stanford himself saw it, which was to train and improve the workers of the future, to Stanford as Jane Stanford saw it, which, which was, was a kind why of, are you coming towards me with no, that knife? 
Yeah, which was, <laughs> but also which was a liberal arts institution that would have like something that would be at home on the East Coast that would maybe have secret societies and things and have a lot of the occult. Yeah, because the mold of like it. the American University at this point was Yale, and Yale is the hellmouth in a lot of ways. But what Stanford does as a university is reinvent the hellmouth in a sort of like nicer West Coast way, um, and it yeah, still it is the vowels from the hellmouth with girls. They got mm. girls too. Mm. Yeah. Oh, coed. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Stabbing Jane Stanford to death and then crossing out the words horse come university written at the top of a document <laughs> on her death <laughs> and crudely writing the word Stanford underneath. Yeah. Uh, so, so David Star Jordan, who again definitely did not assassinate Stanford's wife Jane after his death, had a mm. different vision for what Stanford would be other than a sort of glorified vocational school or a liberal arts college in the West Coast. Can you tell me Fish about Come University? <laughs> can you tell me about David Starr Jordan and his what his desires were for Stanford? Um, yeah, so he's he's the comes from Indiana University. So this is this is who they get when they can't get any of the top presidents. So they approach like the you know the presidents of the top universities on the East Coast. And they're like, hey, want to move to California and run a, a university in California? And they're like, fuck no. Like no one knows any, no one has any books in California. Like no one wants to go to California to do the life of the mind. Uh, and so they are stuck with, they end up stuck with this guy, David Starr Jordan, who's a progressive educator in that he like believes in you very strongly in eugenics and he studies fish. Uh, and from his studies of fish, trying to breed derives, the world's fastest fish. <laughs> well, sort of, I mean, honestly, he's a, he's a, uh, a racist, a very like active racist in the world, uh, which for him turns out to be a kind of anti-imperialism because he's like, we don't want, we don't want all those people in our country. Like if we, if we, you know, colonize the Philippines, then we've got all these Filipinos in our country and like, we don't want that. So we shouldn't, so colonization is bad. Uh, mm. Because I'm such a racist that the, the, the racist <laughs> argument against imperialism is a fun bit. Yeah, Philippines got weird fish over there. Got those ones that eat your feet. Fucking weird. Don't want it. Wall it off. Wait, don't go in there. Is that the Northern California accent? Yeah. yeah no, this guy. This guy's British now. <laughs> He's got British energy. Northern California accent in the uh, like paradox timeline <laughs> where it was all English colonization. Yeah. Yeah. So well, but he was also class. a Japanophile, and so he goes to Japan. I believe the preferred term is a weebophile. Yes, <laughs> he's a weeb. He's a weeb, uh, yeah. uh, and meets with the empire, the emperor, and is like cataloging Japanese fish, also, uh, and thinks that like the Japanese are mm. like a quarter white or something. He's like they're they're the whitest mm. people of Asia. Which is something that the Japanese also think. So that's <laughs> fun. It's true, and so he, then he be. I mean, that's a good point, and so he becomes uh, like a close ally with the Japanese government, um, which becomes kind of interesting a little bit later on. Uh, in that they like set up spies in Stanford University. Uh, this, this guy has the same like the same ideology of like an eight chan poster now. Yeah, I was about to say he just sounds it's like the other a way around. Poster. It's the eight chan post. Where do you think they got that ideology? You think they made it up? Mm. So I, I, I want to so talk about bionomics. Let's talk about bionomics. Yeah, I want to guy disemboweling himself with a samurai sword because he couldn't make the fish coming up. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I want to talk a little bit about about bionomics because this was one of the first big things that made Stanford distinctive. Um, and this actually, I'll, I'll, before I hand back to you, I'll read, a, I'll read your own words. So, in a lecture on degeneration, Jordan took stu his students on an intellectual tour of the world's downward slopes. 
from the tropic from the tropics where life is too easy and thus people are lazy to the american south where slavery stomped out intelligence all around to the slums where poor moral incentives led to sluggishness to declining europe which was softened by luxury without new leadership the species would surely degenerate and the fate of humanity held in the balance the implicit Goldilocks solution was white America, particularly in the West, where genius wasn't neurotic or tragic, but unalloyed in the achievement of strong, well-rounded Anglo-Saxon settler men. Great men live great lives, wrote Jordan, and the bio- bi- not- bionomic proof is in the pudding. So this is, number one, a um, how a lot of the early learning at Stanford, but also, I think, if we want to draw a line to the present day, something that you could very easily see in the, let's say, private diaries of, um, of a lot of Silicon Valley venture capitalists, or maybe in the public comments on some of their rationality blogs that they all like to read. Mm. Yeah, you yeah, have to like, outsource this to like a guy like Mencius Moldbug now, but whatever. Mm. Sorry, Malcolm, please. But that was, I mean, yeah, that was the, this were core ideas and were being taught as a science at Stanford. And so this bionomics uh, is taught by a few professors at Stanford. It's not a huge subject. Among those professors were David Starr Jordan, the president of the university, and others that he recruited from Indiana, where he used to be, um, including this guy Kellogg. And so they, their idea was that uh, hierarchy was natural, right? That uh, evolution meant that the basis for all nature was hierarchy, competition, and domination. And so you had to cultivate these things and that they manifested in terms of humanity, in terms of racial difference, right? So you have more fit people and less fit people. And for him, it was really this like the Stanford man was his invention of an evolutionarily fit uh, person and Stanford woman as well, right? Because it was a project, right? They recruited both. And so he builds this university in this image of bionomics. And then once you have an idea of the naturalness of hierarchy, then equality strikes you as fundamentally unnatural and like it must be imposed. And you associate equality with authoritarianism um, and anti-liberty. And this has got to put this in the context of the Bolshevik revolution, which happens pretty soon after and the like anti-colonial movements that are kicking off. And so it's in dialogue with this global struggle for equality, this is the, the reaction, right? This is the scientific uh, assertion of the naturalness of, inequal- of inequality. We've developed a new course here at Stanford University on the libidinous nature of the Serbian brain pan. We're going to allow women to study it to see what it does to their ovaries. <laughs> no, that's, and, and this is also, you don't just see this in terms of international uh, sort of counter-revolution. You even see it as Stanford as kind of the West Coast headquarters of anti-New Dealism, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, this is this is getting back into Herbert Hoover. <laughs> Give me the old deal. <laughs> yeah, that's what it yeah. sort of it was, yeah. Mm. But okay. you, we get this in Herbert Hoover, kind of, as, as we said, the ultimate Stanford man, the self-made orphan who is a... <laughs> he killed his parents? <laughs> well, the orphan, <laughs> let's say orphan made good. <laughs> Too many orphans that they're just born into it, you know? <laughs> now, now, Hoover would, of course, go on to be president, but uh, after he studied at Stanford, he then sort of joined a sort of globetrotting mineral wealth extraction effort that most we w- mostly was done as a kind of Hoover-Stanford joint effort. And like so many of the other conservative elite uh, throughout and after the Depression, he hated Roosevelt and used Stanford as a, as, as I mentioned before, the West Coast 
fight against New Dealism. So let's talk a little about Hoover and Stanford and sort of how that began and what how Hooverism shaped what Stanford would then go to become. Yeah. And it's important to see him as this mining engineer and this history of mining engineering. It's like, what does mining engineering mean at the beginning of the 20th century? Well, it means going to what we now think of as the third world and digging up as much of their stuff as fast as you can and taking it for yourself, right? These are concessions and they're concessions that are acquired by great power domination. Um, and so he's America is not a big player in this, you know, the world scramble at this point. It's not a colonial power, um, at least not to that degree. Uh, but they still want these California technicians to come in and help. And one of the things they want them to come help with is, or one of the things Hoover ends up doing is this uh, racialization of labor and using race to split workers. And so when Hoover's a consultant in for mines in South Africa, and they have labor problems. He's like, I know what to do. I got some buddies in China. They can ship us a bunch of workers uh, real quick. Let me just get on the phone. Not on the phone, but you know what I mean. Uh, Amazing things happening in China, et cetera. Well, we, hey, we're going to be able to call China on the phone with some Stanford inventions uh, later on, but we'll get to those. Yeah, soon enough, right? Uh, but then also brings in, he brings in Italian workers and he separates the Italian workers and the Anglo workers with the Italian workers as like a second class uh, of workers, and then is use use this to uh, leverage everyone's how wages. How the Italians down. became white, and is just like no, no, go backwards, <laughs> put it back. Well, no, and that that happens soon in the the banks, right, with the Giannini and Bank of America. So we definitely see how the Italians become white. But at the beginning of Stanford University, it really is the the Italians fall on the wrong side of the bionomic list, and so you have an effort by uh, a Stanford psychologist to count the number of Italians in the schools in the Bay Area and see what kind of negative impact the Italians are having on other students because they're Italians. Mm. Uh, the textbook splattered with marinara sauce. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> tentacles of spaghetti extending over the globe, you know. Yeah, and they've been, they've been pushing webistics. <laughs> it's important to understand that whiteness is being defined both inclusively and exclusively at this period, right? They're telling people oh, you're from Japan, you're not white. You're from Syria, you're not white. We're figuring this out at the same time as they're saying, oh, from Russia? Okay. Like from Armenia? Borderline. Okay, fine. Yeah. Because of the like exigencies of agricultural production, we're going to incorporate uh, Armenians. Two, two different sort of approaches to the same thing. We're on the East Coast. This is sort of like done with a pretense of like gentility a lot, of, a lot more of the time where it's like, you know, uh, society, whereas California, this is like full bore scientific racism. Hey, do you hear about this? We're getting bumped up to white. <laughs> <laughs> so, one of the things that we have here, right, and this is sort of one of our bridges between race science and um, high tech production, is that a lot of the guys who came over for the race science, like William Shockley, who was one of the originators <laughs> of. William Shockley, who was surprised yeah. at what he found. Very, very surprised. <laughs> yeah, the inventor of the uh, shock jock. Yeah, William Shockley, yeah. who was one of the people who was behind this like Bene Gesserit ultimate American Quisatz Haderach breeding mm -hmm. program that mm -hmm. was the University of Stanford. He was one of the guys who would go on to start one of the first semiconductor company. Oh no, semiconductor. Yeah. Unfortunately, unfortunately, the yeah. East Coast was uh, like beat them in the race to generate the like all American Quisatz Haderach, and it was JFK, and they had to kill him. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, we're trying to build a master race of horses. It never quite worked out, <laughs> yeah, but. So, so Shockley is one of the guys who comes over to work in the sort of bionomics profession. He was interested in creating this, this sort of master race of Americans. 
um, and ends up in one of these early technology-focused spinouts. So let's talk a little bit about um, vacuum tubes and the first startups that sort of get it spun out of the university's research labs. This is like 1900 TF now. There was a vacuum tube involved. <laughs> we're, yeah. we're recording this onto a wax cylinder. Yeah. I say, have you heard about the newest dervish? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so tell us about, a little about that. I tried to, to show, I mean, usually the, these kind of histories sort of gloss over the technical specifics. And so I tried to show what a, a vacuum tube triode was and how it's linked to a transistor. And that a transistor is basically a triode, right? With like, it's a three point circuit, um, mm-hmm. which is also what the vacuum tubes were. Vacuum tubes did it like badly and they produced a bunch of heat and uh, broke all the time. Exploded a lot. There was, a, there was oh, an idea the at the Tesla time. Tesla of the early 1900s. Well, and they, they thought that computers were impossible because the vacuum tube failure rate multiplied by the number of vacuum tubes that you'd need means that it could never work for any amount of time because you would just turn you'd it on and they would start exploding. running around, you know, turning, right. you know, replacing all the vacuum tubes. Mm. And these were, of course, the original computer bugs were the bugs that were attracted by the heat and the light of the vacuum tubes and would fuck things up <laughs> by flying into them. Like oh, that's bugs. good, actually. Yeah, my computer is full of bugs. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> going in there with a big swatter. Yeah. I'm wearing a piss so helmet. The only, the only Get way out of my computations, you vile beasts. The only way for a computer really to be made to work would be if you were like happy to accept a record number of like orphan blindings as yeah. they went around, like getting vacuum tubes exploded on them. <laughs> They're all nepo babies anyway. Those orphans. <laughs> Vacu- uh, what vacuum tubes are very useful for is radios. Um, and one thing that you're going to need. One thing that you're going to need a lot of radios for is uh, World War II, and World War II happens. Also, just down the road, you have the like burgeoning American aircraft industry, and I think one thing that is often overlooked in terms of like marrying up uh, modern Silicon Valley sort of like long-time special friends with benefits relationship with the military-industrial complex is from like before day one, they were building the radios to put in the planes. You know, they were calling, you know, uh, Martin Marietta and like uh, Lockheed and Northrop Grumman and all of these fuckers. So it's, it's just absolutely baked in. And then World War II, you know, uh, ends and someone happily invents an electronic vacuum tube. Hmm. But I, I just let's let's talk about let's talk about the relationship of the university to these industrial concerns, because they don't just come out of nowhere. It's because universities aren't spinning up companies at this rate or in this industry really anywhere else, if I understand this correctly. Yeah. I mean, the so it's really this guy, Frederick Terman, who gets the, the credit for as provost. And so he's another one where he was, <laughs> I think, maybe the, the best example of the school's uh, eugenic program. So his dad is Lewis Terman, who's the mm-hmm. inventor of the Stanford Binet IQ test. Yeah, exactly. Right, and he so he's the one who really pushes Stanford into uh, intelligence testing and the intelligence as this next level of bionomics and applying it to people. And so he has a son named Frederick who grows up basically on Stanford campus and is trained from the beginning uh, to be like Herbert Hoover, right? The like next generation of Stanford man. And for him, that means radios, because we're past uh, mining engineering a little bit. Now we're into radios. And so he becomes a real, what they call radio hams, right? He was an amateur radio guy 
as was uh i called them podcast hogs these days herbert hoover <laughs> jr was his playmate um on stanford campus and they together were doing uh radio stuff and terman's a, a genius like they test him young so his dad does this statewide genius search where he's testing as many kids throughout california as he can looking for the geniuses to be put to work uh for the state basically I should also and say this has helped a lot by World War One, which is the big rollout of standardized intelligence testing, because you, you have the first mass recruitment of troops since the Civil War, and everyone's trying to figure out whether or not they can read. Right, and that's and that's Terman. So that's and those are the alpha and beta tests, and those were again, if you think about what the eugenic concerns of those people were at the time, David Starr Jordan was hugely, hugely concerned. Um, about the dysgenic impacts of war. Like anyone can get killed by a bullet now. What he said was the clown can shoot down the hero, right? Now that we've got guns 10, and bombs. pounds of education for like, It doesn't, uh, right, exactly. I, just nothing. Dysgenic. If we go to, if we go to war with a, another country of lesser people, we're just going to be throwing away our, you know, Anglo-Saxon genes into this meat grinder that is war. And so they become, for a while, real peace activists, the bionomicists. So including keep Jordan getting into the, like, the right answer for the wrong reasons, like well, anti-colonialist because we're racist, anti-war because we're racist. Guy who's so racist, he's accidentally a genius. Yeah. <laughs> he's just like, so, wrapping it all the way around. So, so in, in this case, though, because in every event, right, all of these guys associated with Stanford, they will be against, um, they will be sort of personally against war. Or against some of these things until the U.S. government just comes and basically says, "Excuse me, we need thirty billion vacuum tubes in order to create all of our war computers," and then they kind of figure out a way to reconcile it with them. To be fair, it wasn't us first. So what happens when I think is the real turning point for bionomics is that Vernon Kellogg, who's one of the the main bionomicists, gets the detailed of to yeah. yeah right the inventor of uh, Kellogg cereal. No, he's not. People are going to think that, and they're going to blame me. Damn, it's a different, um, a different color. He was actually the honey puff, the, <laughs> the different, sugar puffs guy. <laughs> different, different, different weird with similar ideas. Yeah, 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 yeah. Different, right. Different also racist. But so Herbert Hoover is running the food program in Europe at this time, and so he's uh, recruiting a bunch of Stanford people. And one of the Stanford people he gets to come work on this food program is Vernon Kellogg. Vernon Kellogg comes, and his job is to sort of liaise with the German high command. Um, during during World War One, who also you know know a lot about eugenics and have uh, ideas about uh, you know human superiority and stuff, and he comes back and he writes this piece, uh, this like book, short book basically about his experience with the German high command, and he's like, these guys are fucking psycho. They're gonna they're gonna try and destroy the world. Like we need to be ready for a war with Germany because they don't understand this evolution stuff the way we understand it. They understand it as like they're going to conquer the world. And they're, they're absolutely going to try it. And so we need to be ready to fight wars now. Like we can no longer fall back on uh, peace activism because they're going to start a war with us whether we like it or not. The trouble is they've not gotten so racist that it makes you smart. They've gotten just racist enough that it makes you evil. <laughs> we need to either make them more racist or less racist. <laughs> so... In this case, right, we have um, we have our our Stanford intelligence testers. And I bet one thing in detail I liked about your book is that you, you mentioned that when they the way they square the circle of needing of needing to support the war is they decide to use intelligence testing 
to filter, decide which people should be exposed to the most danger in, uh, in war. Like, if you cannot, like, look at a progression of three slightly differently shaped squares. Your life may depend on identifying which one comes next. Right, because that's if they're worried about the dysgenics of of war, right? And so they the intelligence testing is able to solve this problem for them because if they can find the smart guys and make sure they're serving not on the front lines, but let's say in an air conditioned bunker or maybe doing equations at Harvard. And so one of the things, one of the reasons you need to be thinking about it uh, this way is that his son Fred Terman, who's a genius, he's already certified that Fred Terman's a genius turns 18 just at the time when they change the draft age to 18. And so when he's thinking about people dying, you know, uh, strong IQs being sacrificed in the war and how he needs to stand between the best genetic material and like getting shot on the battlefield, he's literally talking about his son, right? And so his son spends most of the war uh, at Stanford. He spends um, that time preparing. And then World War II He's going to spend that time in a bunker in Cambridge helping to win the war effort because that's how wars are going to be won World War II on is not by, you know, someone shooting down someone else, but by inventing the radar jammers, which they did, uh, that are going to win you the war via intelligence. And so this plan, the Stanford plan of we're going to create the smartest weapons in the world and we're going to hold them back from the battlefield and they're going to win wars for us with their intelligence is extremely successful in World War II, not just with Frederick Terman, but also with Shockley, who's playing a key role in this war effort, but again, from behind the scenes. And goes on to inspire one of the key scenes in the film Starship Troopers, where the three main characters are sorted by which ones are most expendable. <laughs> so we have our, 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 our sort of basic structure at this point, right? Um, we have our, our university, we have its focus, and we have its own desire to mercenarily rent itself out more than any other university at the time. It, it became a model for what a lot of universities do now, see the like MIT Media Lab or whatever, but it was, it was path-breaking in that sense. Um, and we have also our first startups, which are largely to do with creating these high-tech materials initially, right? No, 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 let me guess, let me guess. <laughs> <laughs> high-tech materials initially, such as vacuum tubes and later uh, transistors, um, mo most of which are for, again, uh, military or heavy industry applications. But, and many of the systems that they built just fully did nothing. You know, I'm thinking about uh, this, the SAGE system for uh, tracking uh, airline, aircraft and so on, trying to basically do a flight tracker by way of punch cards. Awesome. Yeah, uh, and of course well, and that it didn't worked, work. right? That was the that I mean, that's still the technology, right? That was the first computer was just tr flight tracking, which is funny that Elon, when Elon Musk got all pissy about flight tracking computers, is like that was the computer. Um, yeah, and so like, but but, but, but in, in a lot of these programs, right? You describe as basically. I, I notice we're sort of coming to time here, so I'm going to try to try to get through to some more of the juicy stuff that links us to the, the period we all know and love, right? Um, these. Did you say, right? These boondoggles that uh, that that you call um, military military Keynesianism, where it is in the post-war period, we need we need to the U.S. government needs to keep funneling money into the economy, and a lot of that needs to, and that but of course that can't be done through anything that you know is uh, let's say 
might give workers any ideas about unionizing or anything too Bolshevik. Of course not. Um, but in fact, that preserves another another topic that you um, a very let's say stickily named topic that is very easy to remember, which is missile suburbanism. That these two ideas that we have to that we have to create our our suburbs of our permanent and well paid, uh, often military relevant technologists. That this again happens out around Palo Alto. That the land values need to be kept high. That it needs to be made very let's say palatable for the people who are living there, who are. Again, let's say in, oh, in enmeshed in this racism world. Yes, we're doing racism again. And further, crazy how that keeps happening. That this arrangement was basically essential for the global empire at which the U.S. was at the center. Can you just sort of go into some of these topics and kind of arrange them again with respect to Stanford, Palo Alto, and so on? Yeah, you know, global empire and stuff. So silicon chips, right? You think silicon and Silicon Valley's story about their own silicon chips is that like, oh, and then we went to the moon. That's what the, all the chips were for in the 60s. Yeah, we is did that for no they, reason. They all yeah. sent us to the moon just to hang out. Uh, but in actuality, the first generation of silicon chips was going in Minuteman 1 nuclear missiles. And so that's what the beginning of Silicon yeah, Valley to blow up is the moon. <laughs> to blow up the moon. Blow up the whole world, right? Is to put a gun to the world's head and say, America's in charge or everyone dies. Uh, and silicon, we think of missiles as like these big objects made of metal and explosions and stuff. Uh, but by value, if you look at the composition by value of these missiles, they're just big dumb bodies for these smart chips. And so it's Silicon Valley's uh, key product in this time is the threat to end the whole world. And not to mention then the the bombing arsenals and avionics, which is the computers that you put in planes, like we were talking about, that's used to jump, dump just like insane, totally insane amounts of uh, explosives on South Asia. And this is the the hinge that basically allows the United States to maintain its role, even in the face of the anti-colonial movements that have the sort of historical tempo after World War II. Right. So Mao's taking China and it looks like everyone's screwed. There's no way you like, you know, the Dutch aren't going to be able to recover Indonesia. And so world equality looks like it's on the march. And how are you going to be able to stop people from overthrowing their colonial governments and declaring themselves equal with you? Uh, well, one way to do it is you threaten to kill everyone in the entire world unless they do what you want. Uh, Works pretty good. And apparently. Palo Alto. Yeah, it does. And Palo Alto, like in this small industry that we think that likes to think of itself as this like hippie industry or whatever, right? Like ARPANET was defensive, uh, but they were building all the nuclear missiles for the whole world. They were the ones building the offensive weapons, not to mention all the tools that allowed for the so-called strategic bombing of Korea and Vietnam. Not to mention at, this great, at this great historical turning point, to preserve its empire, the U.S. turned to creating intercontinental nuclear weapons, and the Dutch turned to Europop. <laughs> so <laughs> they invented the Venga hard Boys. to say which was more dangerous. Yeah. So, so between one of the other things that we get right, this is the, one of the last sort of technologies that was invented by Stanford um, to let's say, assist in enabling this global empire was not, in fact, a technology made of um, silicon and, and tubes and glass and stuff. It was a political, a social technology, which was the Modern Research Institute, as well as... Yeah, SRI, which, which gives its name to Siri, by the way. And also the modern uh, right-wing political think tank. Uh, beyond, like, 
beyond the Rand Corporation, but one directly associated with the university, the Hoover Institution. Because if we are going to build all of the chips for all of these bombs, we need to keep resupplying the bombs, which means we need to continue writing papers as to why the bombs need to be dropped, because otherwise all of the people who are living in the comfortable suburbs around Palo Alto are not going to be able to continue to afford their houses. That's the basics of it. And where are you going to get the workers to build, even in Silicon Valley, to wire the damn chips together is you have to bomb them out of their homes in Vietnam so that they have to immigrate to the United States, that they come to California and need a job and you can put them to work assembling microchips. And so they really, you really see them like bomb the proletariat, the Asian proletariat in particular, like into the chip foundries, both in Asia itself, where they're exporting these, these foundries, but also in Silicon Valley itself, where the lion's share of that early tech labor is done by uh, refugees from the wars that Silicon Valley technology made possible in the first place. So I, I think this is, I want to sort of um, bring it to a close here with uh, a, another quote from your, um, from your book. You say, if we look at Palo Alto and Santa Clara County, it's easy to see how rearmament funded suburbanization. Stanford was the conduit from the federal government to the regional economy for a disproportionate amount of this value, and that meant building more than weapons. As the settlers poured into the Valley of Hearts delights, they turned military spending into consumer spending, buying newly constructed homes with the mortgages back for their stable, lucrative jobs making missiles. Demand for the accoutrements of suburban life surged. Refrigerators, air conditioners, cars, lawnmowers. The university at kept adding housing subdivisions and luxury shopping centers, but took pains to always control the nature of development, which is, again, another place you can see an, one of these modern manias of the United States that's especially, especially runs deep in California, which is paranoia about the wrong sort of people moving in, especially if that means anything looks a little bit bad at all, if there's any housing built, and so on and so on. So just, just sort of by way of, of wrapping up, I think let's bring it back local. And let's talk just about how we can connect Palo Alto in the immediate post-war period to the Silicon Valley that we know today, not just in terms of what it produces, but in terms of the whole lived experience of the place itself. Yeah. I mean, if you think about what are the origins, right? So you've got the Stanford family moving away from the city to the suburbs, founding the suburb to get away from class conflict, right? To get away from any, the, the consequences of their own action. And in the 150 years since then or so, there's been a real effort to preserve Palo Alto as that kind of safe area, right? That's where the value of the, the land comes from, is that it's safe from this kind of conflict. That means not letting too many people move there, for one thing, but it also means hiding the production and the industry that's going on. And so Palo Alto is one of the first places that starts uh, zoning codes which now is a very important part of American politics. Uh, but Herbert Hoover, who we've been talking about so much, he's the one who brings the organization together, the association, to write those, the model zoning code in the first place. And so Palo Alto, if you walk around Palo Alto, it lo really looks like every, anything that could be doing anything is hiding behind a bush. Like offices hide behind bushes. They're real far set back from the street, and they're low-hanging, and it looks like if you were hiding some sinister shit that you were doing, that's where you would hide it, like in the suburbs behind these bushes in some like friendly looking building. And that's where they were hiding it, right? That's where they were coming up with plans to do like, how do you destroy a, a village in Vietnam? 
let's figure it out. You know, let's do that analysis. What are the statistics of that? Uh, and so we talk about it being haunted, right? And being sinister. It's because of the ways that these historical dynamics persist into the present and at the same time camouflage themselves uh, in that persistence. So it's a creepy place. And if people like are there and feel like it's creepy and are creeped out, William James, fam- the philosopher, famously said that famously said that Palo Alto like creeped him out. Um, they're not wrong. Like it is creepy, and it's creepy because of this history. And I feel like that's a, a real through line in the book is figuring out why is this place so creepy. And there are very good answers. Walking mm-hmm. into a back room to find two men shaving a horse. Mm-hmm. So um, <laughs> I think ultimately, right? This is you can see the modern Silicon Valley veneer of liberalism as another bush that these people are hiding things behind. And I think that this, histor- this, this view of history that goes beyond just ARPANET, that, goes, that actually looks in detail at how, how so much of modern reaction was, if not invented, then perfected, not just in America, not just in California, but specifically in Palo Alto, and then re-exported to the rest of the world, either by giving them something to imitate or building the bomb that would be dropped or starting the institution that argues for the building of the bomb to be dropped and so on, you know, it's, it is extremely instructive. Uh, and so it is, uh, once again, I, a book I must urge all of you listening to go and check out because there is so much more in here than we were able to talk about today. Um, we were not able to cover everything in the time period, and we were certainly not able to cover every time period covered. So, Malcolm, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me. And out in July in the UK for all your UK yeah. listeners. Out in July in the UK. Uh, so, all that being said, don't forget, this is a free episode. There is a bonus episode. It will be out in just a couple short days. Uh, on it will be something. Uh, you'll see then. Uh, mm. I'll know when I look at the calendar. Uh, but yeah. also, there is a live show in Berlin, Germany on March 11th. There is. You can uh, buy tickets to it. There are still tickets available, although I believe more than half of them are gone. Oh, yeah. Way more than half. Way so than snap half. those up. Um, there is also a live show in London on the 20th of mm. February. Uh, over over 60% of tickets for that gone as well. Um, there, uh, there's, there's a bunch of live shit for me on my website, marlowes.co.uk slash live dash shows. Exactly. So there are things to do, but once it is out in the UK, uh, or when it's out in the US for American listeners, or where it's out in your own country for our international listeners, buy the book. It's very good. Buy the mm-hmm. book. Buy that book. Buy book. Buy the book. Uh, <laughs> buy the book. So. I must, I must concur. Yeah. Mm. So. Uh, Once again, Malcolm, thanks for coming and hanging out with us. Thank you to our listeners for listening, and we'll see you later. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.